The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. I'm your host, Joey Bushnell. Today I'm very excited because I have a very special guest on the line. His name is Robert Green. He is the author of several books. He writes about the intersection between psychology and strategy, and his books are absolutely fantastic. They include The 48 Laws of Power, his new book, Mastery, The 50th Law, The Art of Seduction, and the 33 Strategies of War. You can find out more about Robert over at powerseductionandwar.com. Robert, thank you so much for being on the call with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Joey. My pleasure. Robert, how did you come to write books on these topics? Well, um, up until I, I started working on the 48 Laws of Power back in 1996. Prior to that, I had many, many different jobs, mostly as a writer, uh, journalism. I worked in Hollywood. And um, I had noticed that, um, you know, nothing really prepares you for the work world. Um, you leave the university where I myself studied uh, the classics. Greek and Latin was my major. And, you know, you enter the work world and people are tricky, political, manipulative. Uh, all things, sorts of things are happening. And you have no guide in the world. The university doesn't prepare you. Your parents don't prepare you. Um and I had noticed by reading a lot of history that there were sort of these recurring patterns and themes that I had noticed in history and that were very similar to the power moves that I was witnessing by film directors, head editors, etc. And I was also struck by the fact that a lot of the things that involve power on the highest levels sometimes involve a, a kind of the darker side of human psychology People can be very passive-aggressive, or they can be aggressive. They can conceal their intentions. Um, there's a sort of world that exists that nobody writes about, nobody describes. It's like a dirty little secret, a taboo. They'll, people will reveal their innermost secrets about sex or anything, but when it comes to power, no, no. It's all about cooperating and being generous and being an ethical leader. To me, a lot of bullshit. I just never witnessed that in real life. Um, and so... Fueled by a bit of anger, a little bit of frustration, and by the opportunity to write a book, which, you know, it came to me a little bit out of luck, I wrote The 48 Laws of Power that combined everything that I just mentioned to you. And from there, everything just sort of took off. Can you let us know what each of your books is about? Well, The 48 Laws of Power is basically, um, I wanted to capture what I mentioned are those sort of timeless patterns uh, that have been existing since we've been civilized, uh, where whenever people form a group of any sort, a tribe, uh, a city-state, a business organization, you have um, egos and you have politics. Um, and so these laws start coming into play based on a lot of psychology. And I wanted to capture all of those 48 laws and reveal them to you um, and I do it in, a, in an adult fashion. Uh, some of the laws are, are um, you know, quite clearly not so moral. Some of them are neutral. Some of them are, are maybe even quite good. 
But I leave it up to you, the reader, to decide what to do. It's either something that you're aware of and maybe now you can protect yourself against some of the sharks out there. And a lot of it involves how to be persuasive, how to have influence over people. And because um, I have a theory that power in the in the modern world is uh, something that I call indirect, that the, that we reward people who are not overtly aggressive, um, seduction plays a, a large role in my concept of what I call soft power. And so it was natural then to do my second book called The Art of Seduction, in which I try to do something that, I mean, whether it succeeds or fails, I don't think has been done before, which is to to connect uh, sexual seduction to social seduction to political seduction to marketing and show you everything that underlies all of that, the psychology involved, um, and go deeply into it. Um, and then because, uh, you know, my books have, are heavily about strategy um, and how to be strategic in the world and sort of control your emotions and and see it as if you're sort of playing a game of chess in a way uh, that was a logical extension to do a book, my version of the art of war, uh, which is the 33 strategies of war in which I take the 33 most classical strategies based on years of research uh, from all cultures and show you how these strategies can be applied in business, in marketing, in politics, wherever. And uh, the fourth book, The 50th Law, came about because the rapper 50 Cent uh, was a huge fan of the 48 Laws of Power and also the Art of Seduction. Uh, my books have been very successful in that world for various reasons. We can go into later if you want. Mm -hmm. And we connected. We became friends. And um, we saw that we had a, a similar interests. And so a book evolved out of our relationship, which is The 50th Law. And basically, I approached it. I call 50 the Napoleon Bonaparte of hip hop. <clears throat> my last, my book prior to that, the 33 strategies, Napoleon Bonaparte was sort of the main character, but all my books have been about people who are dead. And here was a real life person that operated by a lot of the laws of power and was very strategic and very interesting. So I used 50 as a kind of living laboratory. I observed him closely and I determined that what makes him so powerful, so successful is the level of fearlessness that he has. It's not fearlessness of a kind of a thuggish type. It's a it's a very deep philosophical fearlessness, almost a kind of stoicism. So the book that we did together is a meditation on on the power you can have if you if you adopt a sort of fearless philosophy. My last book, Mastery, which came out a few months ago, is sort of the ultimate distillation of everything I've written. I've noticed that all of the great power figures that I've studied Many of them dead, but a lot of them now in the last years have been alive because I work as a consultant. I've noticed that they have this sort of what I call a high-level intuition. They've, done, they've been working so long in their field, music, science, business, whatever, that they have this sort of fingertip feel for what's happening in the world, for trends, etc. And it's extremely powerful. It's what we might call genius, but I prefer not to use that loaded word. I call it mastery, high-level intuition. And I wanted to debunk all of the silly myths in our culture about how people are born that way. It's a genetic thing. No, it comes through a process. It's the same process that Einstein does, that a Steve Jobs did. It doesn't matter 
the field, it's connected to the human brain, and it's not a matter of genetics. It's something we're all born with. I'm going to show you in a step-by-step process in six chapters how people achieve this incredibly powerful intelligence that actually anybody can aim for and achieve on whatever level. So uh, that book was a little different in that I use a lot of history of the greatest masters in all fields, and I interviewed nine contemporary masters. So it it had a, you know, I gave it a contemporary spin everywhere from the great architect Santiago Calatrava to the tech entrepreneur uh, Paul Graham to Temple Grandin, uh, etc. And so that's that's my latest book. That's my overview of all five of the books. Do you know what you're going to do in the future, Robert? Is it too early to tell at this point, or is that something that you've already got planned out? Well, for any of the people out there who are familiar with mastery, um, I have a chapter in there, chapter four, on what I call social intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the point of that chapter is it's not enough to simply uh, know your field really well, to be a nerd and to have accumulated a lot of knowledge. Uh, we're a social animal. Power only exists in a social sense. We have to work in groups. And so I wrote a chapter that shows you how actual intelligence in, on any level, business or whatever, is, is inextricably um, intertwined with uh, social intelligence. Your ability to work with people directly affects your ability to get work done in the world. Um, and so I wrote a book, uh, sorry, a chapter that it shows you the two elements of social intelligence, how to read people in the moment, how to be much more attuned to the individual psychologies of everybody that you deal with, and then how to be aware of these sort of basic timeless laws of human behavior so that you're not so naive. Um, and the icon for that chapter was Benjamin Franklin, I think the most socially intelligent person that may perhaps ever lived. Well, I'm, uh, I'm now spinning a book based on that chapter. I'm going to give you the ultimate, hopefully, book on, on what I consider the basic elements of human nature and take that idea of, of how to read people in the moment and go deeper into it. So I'm, I'm currently spinning like a spider a, a book just on that one chapter. Awesome. Thanks for the inside scoop. I can't wait for that to be released. There's so much we could talk about. Your work covers so many different areas. I thought I would just focus on one of your books. The first book that I read of yours was The 48 Laws of Power, and possibly my favourite as well. So that will be the focus of the interview today. Why do you think it is important for us to know The 48 Laws of Power? Well, I kind of explained it earlier um, in the sense of uh, these are the laws that a lot of people operate by. Now, I'm not saying everybody does, mm-hmm. uh, but it tends to work out almost like a, a mathematical ratio that if you have a group of 10 people, you're almost inevitably going to find at least one or two people who are using a lot of the more overt laws of power, the more manipulative ones. And you can't disengage yourself from that game. Um, if you are completely unaware of what people out there might be doing, um, you're just going to be tripped up. You're going to find yourself continually at a disadvantage. If you are armed with knowledge, if you are aware that certain dynamics are at play, then you have options. You can play defense. You can ignore that person and take the consequences, perhaps with a game plan in mind. Um, on and on and on. You've increased your options. And so I think... 
you need to be aware of these laws. It doesn't make you paranoid. It doesn't mean you're going to now become a bad person, an asshole, or any of those other things. It just means you're going to be more aware. And so just to give a, a brief example, uh, law number one is never outshine the master. I made it law number one because it's so common. It happened to me a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And basically the law is if you're in a subordinate position of some sort, and pretty much all of us are at, at some point in our life or even today, um, your general tendency is to try and impress the people above you or the person above you so well uh, that they'll like you and maybe keep you or promote you. But in the process of doing that, you're not aware that that person above you has insecurities. And if you try so hard, they may see that you're after their job or that you're just better than they are. Or they might envy the fact that you're younger. On and on and on. They have insecurities. And if you're not aware of them, you could end up uh, being fired or demoted or not promoted and not even aware of what's happening. And so... There's nothing to be lost by knowing about that dynamic, having that kind of awareness. It could save you years of misery of being fired from a job and not knowing why. It doesn't mean that you have to continually, you know, flatter and not assert yourself. I make it clear that that's not what this is about. But being aware that the people above you have egos and insecurities, I don't see a, a single person on the planet who couldn't benefit from being aware of that. So if someone would point to these laws and say that they are unethical or they are claiming that they're a non-player, that they wouldn't use these things, first of all, is that true? Are there non-players? And number two, would you be more suspicious of that person if they're trying to deny it? Well, number one, there are non-players. There are people who are maybe saints who live in a desert by themselves in a cabin where they don't interact with people. There may be a couple of people like that in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, I'm saying pretty much nobody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it depends on the person. Somebody could could assert that and and not really be aware of what they're saying, that that, that – uh, they're, they're basically a little bit naive. Um, and we all, I was certainly naive when I entered the work world, so there's no criticism there. But then there are people who really make a point of saying, I don't do anything like these laws of power, and they're the most manipulative people you'll ever meet. They're in a conti- state of denial to the point where they won't even admit it to themselves, or it's their cover. Um, I was once interviewed by a very, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the O'Reilly Factor in England. It's a show here on Fox News. Um, a very sort of obnoxious uh, right-wing commentator. I'm not making a political comment, but he's a very sort of um, overtly obnoxious interviewer. And he had me on his show for the 48 Laws of Power, and he was basically saying he liked the book, but he found it completely immoral and very ugly, and he didn't think people should read it. And at the t- and the process of saying that, the way he did his questions were so manipulative he was basically highlighting only the the most negative parts of the book, cherry picking them. And I, you know, it's like you're being, you're condemning the book at the same time that you're being highly manipulative in how you're presenting it and how you're guiding the questions. There are a lot of people out there like that. So if someone is making um, uh, a real case uh, that they have nothing to do with any of these laws, you really might, you know, your antennae might go up a little bit and say that this person actually might be the exact opposite. I've selected six laws out of the 48, which I'd like to talk to you about a little bit further today. I guess in some ways, 
These can be used in life in general, but also perhaps in marketing and business as well. That's what I'm quite interested in myself personally uh, and the listeners as well. The first one that I wanted to talk about is Law 6, which is court attention at all costs. Why do we want to do this? Well, you must keep in mind that each law is um, <clears throat> circumstantial. In other words, it depends on the circumstances that you're in. And I make that clear as I write it. So there's no law that's written in this book that pertains to every single circumstance in life. And there are going to be people out there in a certain position who shouldn't court attention at all costs. And at the end of the chapter of each chapter, I have a reversal that explains why you may not want to use that. Mm -hmm. But the point of um, of this is that in the opening stages of your career, um, for most careers, any attention is what you want. Any attention is good attention, even if it's bad attention. Um, I remember um, my lesson in this, even though I wrote that law, sometimes it takes experiences to make it even clearer to me. Uh, when The Art of Seduction came out, uh, I was interviewed by a journalist uh, for a woman's magazine, and she pretended to be friendly and liked the book. And then she wrote a very, very negative uh, article about the art of seduction, essentially saying it was like a book for sociopaths. And I got kind of worried. I got very upset about it. Um, and then I read, and then as the, as the months, as the article came out, I sales skyrocketed. The art of seduction from that one article really took off. And I went, wow. I didn't, I just realized the power of my own law that I was, you know, why was I getting upset? A negative article was practically, for a book like The Art of Seduction, even better uh, than a positive article. It was precisely what I was writing about. So in many situations, getting talked about, getting people to be aware of you, to have presence, to know about who you are, is the game, is the game that you're playing. You want attention. You want to grab some of that airspace that exists out there in a world that's very difficult to get it uh, because it's so hyper-competitive and to get it for more than a few seconds. So any attention is good, and that, that can even be what we would normally consider as bad attention. So I wanted to make you aware of that dynamic. Sure. So even if it's bad, it's certainly better than no one's talking about you at all. Even I'm trying to say that in some circumstances, even the bad attention mm -hmm. is it can be better. It's it, it it's something I'm writing about in my new book uh, about human nature. We're attracted uh, almost in a primal way to something negative. Mm -hmm. When an event occurs, our fear element comes into play, and we are we're sort of excited by the possible negative consequences of something we're drawn to an automobile accident whatever when you when people are talking uh negatively about your company about you or whatever it has several effects it may it may mean people become sympathetic they, they like the underdog or they take your side or they're intrigued by the darker side that you might be you know uh involved in or whatever there are all kinds of negative possible positive consequences from having that kind of attention to you law 13 is when asking for help appeal to a person's self-interest never to their mercy or self-gratitude why would you recommend this well i think it's it's pretty self-evident um i think almost everybody would understand that concept and it's simply the fact that everybody 
uh, we're all to some degree uh, have a, a high level of self-interest. We're selfish to some degree. It's not a criticism, and it doesn't mean that we're all narcissists. Mm-hmm. But in any situation, our 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 minds naturally evolve to revolve devolve to what's in it for me. How does this affect me? You know, can this benefit me? Can this harm me? Um, and then we might move on from that and have a more altruistic point of view about things. But that's almost always our initial response. And a lot of people um, in business um, mistake that. They think that people are naturally altruistic or that they're thinking in, on your terms, that your interests are converging. I'm trying to show you, uh, make you aware of the fact that you're not thinking about the other person in most cases. You're not putting yourself in their shoes, thinking about your client, thinking about their needs, their interests, what they want, what they're going to get out of it. 99% of the time, you're projecting onto them your own emotions, what you want them to think, what you want them to believe. And it's very dangerous. And I'm trying to tell you that you need to stop that and you need to think of what their self-interest is in any situation. That can be on an individual level. You're asking your boss for a promotion. And it could be on a marketing level, what it is exactly uh, that your audience wants, what their needs are, what they're looking for. In the 50th law, I have a chapter on the closer you get to your audience, the more f- actual feedback you have to the fact that you're almost one with them the more powerful you will be in, in, in marketing in, in all aspects of business and how 50 uh, was absolutely brilliant at that. Um, and it's once you have that kind of intimate, close, personal relationship to your customers, to your clients, and you can think inside their skin, you have incredible power. Uh, and you will naturally know what their self-interest is. In any situation in business, you must stop yourself and say, am I projecting onto them what I want? And go back and say, no, what is their self-interest? It's, to me, uh, pretty self-evident, but a lot of people violate it. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, in marketing, it's the first step. If you are selling a product, you ask, what does the target market want and why would they buy this? But there's there's nuances to that because, as I said, everybody's sort of aware of that, mm-hmm. but they don't practice it. And you'd be surprised how insidious our, our, our selfishness is in the sense that we're really – how we can convince ourselves that this is what the other person is thinking and how often what we think they want is converging with what we want. Mm-hmm. It, it really, really is almost like a – an exercise, an intellectual exercise you must go through and even go to the opposite extreme saying that person who I'm trying to influence is actively going to resist what I want. They don't have my same interests and go through a process where you're really trying to see the world from their point of view and why they don't want your product uh, is to me some a way to apply this law. Law 16 is use absence to increase respect and honor. How can this be applied in a business situation? Well, it's a, it's a delicate dynamic, and at first glance, it seems to contradict court attention at all costs. So it's a, it's a thing that's specific, um, and I don't really know if it's exactly going to fit to the marketing angle that we're approaching. I thought of that law more in terms of of interpersonal relationships. Um, but it, it, it comes to something elemental about human psychology. And so perhaps in that way, it, it, it has a link up to marketing, um, which is 
when people are too present, are too familiar, they're too in our face, um, something happens to us psychologically. We begin to tune them out. We begin to get sick of them. We begin to know them so well and become so familiar with who they are that we lose a bit of respect for them. Um, and you pass a certain threshold with the fact that you're too present in their lives, too much in their face. And once that threshold is passed, you're never going to repair it. They've lost a certain respect for you. Uh, I tie this very much into seduction uh, to uh, a man or woman seducing the opposite sex. Um, and the opposite of an, a, a bit of absence has the opposite effect. When someone uh, is not there all the time, it gives us space to think about them. Mm-hmm. Your job in influence and persuasion is to get the other person to think about you or your product without you forcing yourself upon them, without you making them think about you. Um, if they go away the next day and they're thinking about something that you did because you've given them that space to do it, you've got them hooked. The fact that their emotions and their willpower is engaged in thinking about you, you've now lowered their resistance, lowered their defensiveness, and you have influence over them. And absence does that. If you're seducing a, a woman and uh, you have this wonderful uh, date, and then the next day you don't call her, she's now wondering about what's going on. And she starts to think about you, and she starts mythologizing about you and wondering if you're this or that. She also is starting to have some doubts and maybe worried. Then you call her the next day and suddenly you're, you're creating this dynamic where she's getting hooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to call your attention to the fact that a lot of people in the world are too present. They think that they just need to impose themselves on other people, that that's the art of influence. And actually, to seal the deal, to end the sale, to get that influence, you actually need to take a step back and let them go through a process where they're thinking about you and they're doing what you actually end up wanting them to do, but their own process, their own willpower is engaged. So that's pretty much what that law is about. While you were talking there, I was thinking about musicians. For example, if a band has not toured in many years, as soon as they release tickets for a new tour, suddenly everyone goes crazy, they sell out within hours, and I believe that's because they haven't been around for a long time. Would you say that that law is is working in that example? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a subtle thing. If, you're, if you disappear for too long... Um, nobody remembers you, and then everyone's uh, the only people that will come to your concert are in their sixties, <laughs> which is you know. So it, it's not like you disappear completely. It's yeah. a dynamic. You're using absence and presence. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte had a quote. I don't have it memorized, but essentially he said, "If I appear at the theater every night, people lose respect for me. They think that I'm just another political figure. Mm-hmm. But if I appear at the theater," Once every three months, suddenly they start thinking about me as if I'm a king, as if I'm royalty. So he was extremely aware of this dynamic, as a lot of politicians like Charles de Gaulle, et cetera, are. Um, if you're too much out there, you, you kill the mythologizing effect that taking a step back can have. So if you're the Rolling Stones and you you tour only once every two years, mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to feed that mythologizing power that people have. 
Yeah, that's exactly who I was thinking of too. The Rolling Stones and Fleetwood Mac have just gone on tour in the UK. And with both of those bands, I was considering buying a ticket and I was wondering, will I get a chance to do this again? So those things were definitely going through my mind and so it's really great to understand that law. Law 35 is recreate yourself. Why is it a good idea to recreate yourself? Well, a lot of the 48 Laws of Power have to do with appearances and the game of appearances. Um, it's unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. It's just the fact of human nature. We tend to judge people on what we can see. Um, we don't really go take the time to imagine what, what's beneath the facade. So a lot of our judgments are based on the facade, the persona, the mask that people present. It's sort of a kind of theater going on. Um, and if you're not careful, uh, people will judge you based on these appearances and they'll kind of pigeonhole you that this is the person that you are. You're, you're shy. You're, you're an aggressive this type. You're that type. Um, and you lose control of the dynamic. They become the ones that determine who you are. And a powerful person never loses control of the dynamic. They're in, in some way in control. Uh, not completely, that's impossible, but they have more control than other people. And so the ability to control your image, to how people think about you, is extremely powerful. Uh, that can apply to you as an individual, it can apply to your brand, etc. And the fact that you're letting time go by and that one image sets into people's minds is very dangerous. Um, you want to be ha have the ability, the power, to recreate who you are, to say, I'm not exactly what you thought. I'm capable of a new style. I'm adapting to the times. I'm going to surprise you. You don't have me figured out 100%. There are elements of my character that are going to surprise you. It's very, very powerful. Um, and I, you know, can give examples in there of artists, you know, someone like a Pablo Picasso, um, who changed his style every six or eight years. Um, and looking back at it now, it almost seems like he was insane. But at the time, it was, and, and it, it still is, a very powerful kind of recreation of his artistic powers. It also revived him creatively, and it made people think that they never could quite figure this man out. He was almost, it's almost like a godlike figure. He's one step ahead of the game. That's how you want to approach it. And if it's good to have a brand, it's good to have a brand that's consistent, that people know about, they trust, but it's also good to mix it up, to adapt it, to, to polish it a little bit, to give it a new aspect, to not violate the reputation that you've established, but give it a new edge, a new veneer, to show other aspects that people hadn't suspected. I want you to be aware of the fact that Things can get stale and you have a, it's a very dangerous thing to lose control of that dynamic and you need to be, in fact, controlling it to some degree. So again, taking it back to music, I see a lot of these things going on in the music industry, by the way. So Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, Christina Aguilera, when they first started off, they were seen as sweet and innocent young girls singing about lovely, wholesome things. Then one day, they changed into these wild, good girls gone bad kind of characters. 
Christina Aguilera, for example, brought out a song called Dirty and suddenly she was wearing leather-clad bikinis and basically they recreated themselves. But in doing this, they gave themselves a second wave of success. In music terms, I would say even more powerful would be someone like a David Bowie. Look at how many incarnations he's gone through and, yes. and, and the absolute reverence he probably is. I mean, maybe maybe the Rolling Stones to some extent, but he's probably the most thought about rock star uh, for, for many generations and how many incredibly different incarnations he's gone through. Mm-hmm. Uh, 50 himself was, a, was is a really good example of it because he, you know, for better or worse, he, he had a very thuggish image as a rapper based on his, his experiences in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knows he can't keep that up. Uh, he's, his whole thing was he hates the fake gangster, the person who pretends to be tougher than than he is. Um, and now, after his initial success, he's uh, you know a multi multi millionaire who lives in a large house. Who he doesn't live on the streets anymore, so he can't get by with that image. He has to recreate it. He has to change it. It's not as successful as it was. Um, if he but if he had tried to re- make you know, it doesn't have that edge, that authenticity that his earlier image had, but he's keeping it authentic. And if he tried to keep playing the, the tough gangster that he did eight years ago, I think he'd become laughable and he'd face something a lot more dangerous in the long run. Law 34 is be royal in your own fashion, act like a king to be treated like one. How would you say this applies in life and perhaps in business as well? Well, it's, you know, I keep coming back to um, certain basic elements of, of human psychology. I, I, maybe it's on my mind because it's the new book, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's another fairly common sense idea, which is how you think about yourself, your own attitude and your own relationship to who you are is projected onto the world. And People smell it. They sense it. They read it off of your body language. They know uh, that you're an essentially uh, timid person, or they know uh, that you're you're a lion, or whatever. You know, an aggressive type. It's not in your words. They feel the attitude that you have. It's projected out into the world in ways you're you're probably not completely aware of. Mm-hmm. And so, once again, I'm trying to make you aware of this dynamic so that you could potentially control it and increase your options. And the idea is I tell, I narrate the story in there, the kind of iconic story. My books, in case the readers don't know, I use a lot of history to illustrate every idea. And the icon for that chapter is Christopher Columbus. He's basically someone who comes from the most middle-class background. I, I can't remember if he was the son of a baker or something like that. Um, Totally uninteresting, totally nondescript. But from an early age, he just imagined that he was born as an aristocrat. Now, you know, today we would call that bipolar. We would probably lock him up. But <laughs> they did about things like that. And he really had himself convinced that he had uh, aristocratic roots. Uh, I'm not sure whether he was it was a game he was playing or whether he truly believed it. But when it came time for his... Um, for, for getting the funding for his voyage to America, it was an insanely ballsy maneuver because here was a guy who really had no experience. I mean, he, he, he had 
captaining, some captaining experience, etc. But why would he be the one that would lead this very expensive uh, and very adventurous uh, voyage to try and find the passage to the east? Um, and he convinced an incredible number of people that he was actually royalty, that he was actually dis- born to, to accomplish this, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the idea is how you feel about yourself is going to be projected. So why not feel that you were destined for something interesting, that you were destined for something great? And in fact, you probably are. I make the case in mastery uh, that everybody is born unique, that your DNA, the configuration of your brain will never occur again in the history of the universe. And that uniqueness that you have is manifested in certain things that you're drawn to certain activities, it could be sports, it could be business, it could be whatever. And the more deeply you go into bringing that uniqueness to play, the more creative you are with it, the more power you will have. It's the, it's the secret to every successful person. So you are destined for something, but you, you're not feeling it. You're not believing it. If you become aware of how your attitude towards yourself, how you think about who you are and what you were meant to do, is really going to affect how people perceive you. Um, and I think that, you know, translates to the product that you have, uh, to how much confidence you have in it, to your own level of self-belief. I know uh, yesterday I was doing this kind of mass consulting where people could come in for a half an hour and tell me about their business idea and I could give them criticism. And I did it for about 20 people uh, over a course of about six hours. And I could tell... Those people who really had a high level of belief, who really, really felt like this was something great, I knew they were going to succeed. And they may, their, their idea might fail, but they'll get back on their feet and they'll, they'll make it happen on, on the second round. So I'm trying to make you aware of your, your level of self-belief is intimately connected to what is going to end up happening to you in life. If we get this wrong and we seem weak... Do you think others will pounce on that and people may take advantage? Uh, very much so, but it's almost, uh, you know, for, from my experience yesterday where these, these were a lot of people who, who were, they were all people who were trying to get funding uh, for their ideas. And they ranged from, from fashion startups to tech startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game at that level is getting funding and going into meetings. Um, and to me, I was trying to say that a, a, an approach where you, lay out a vision of what you're going to create is the most important thing that you're doing. Um, it's not about being charming or having a good smile or what you wear. It's about the nuts and bolts of your idea. But if you believe in it, um, you're going to create a much stronger vision of what this is going to be like. And your tone of voice will communicate so many things. Um, the thing that people do when they don't believe in themselves that I've discovered in my years of experience is that they are vague. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're actual not believing that, that, some, that what you're going to do is successful, you come into a meeting sort of wishy-washy, kind of half explaining what's going to happen. A lot of uh, wishes are in there and you're vague. For a reason, because you don't really believe in it. You haven't put enough thought into it. The fact that you believe in it is read in the, in, in, in the fact 
that you have thought it through deeply because you believe in it so much, you're willing to put in that detailed work. You're willing to put a connect A to B to C to D. I can read that in people right away. I can distinguish in those meetings between the people who believe uh, and those who don't by the uh, amount of detail they can give me about their ideas. I, I don't know if I can explain it any better, but I've, I've been going through this for years. Mm-hmm. And I, I have in the book um, Paul Graham, uh, who's the creator of Y Combinator. I don't know how famous he is in England. He is actually born in England. Um, and he's a, uh, has a school in Silicon Valley that trains people for tech startups and he takes a cut of their business if they, if they're successful. His business now is worth over five billion dollars. Uh, he's, he's, things like Airbnb have come out of his, his, his incubator school. He's interviewed 5,000, maybe 10,000 people who want to get into his school. He's got the same, uh, uh, set of, of uh, criteria, he can tell right away those people uh, who don't really truly believe in it by their vagueness. And the key to success in any kind of startup is your level of persistence. It's not so much your intellect. The, the, the Zuckerbergs and, and the, the Page and, and uh, Brins that succeed have such a level of belief in what they're doing that they'll put up with the kind of crap that most people won't put up with. They're incredibly persistent and resilient. You can read that on people. I can read that right away when, when they come in for a meeting. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say in my long-winded what manner. My final question is, Law 37, create compelling spectacles. Any ideas of how we can apply this in a business or marketing situation? Well, it, that's a hard one, to be <laughs> honest with you, because uh, it really... It really depends um, on on the kind of business that you that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to say it, it kind of connects to the court attention at all cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of compelling spectacle uh, that that I'm really pinpointing in that particular law is the kind that has a large effect. The compelling spectacles are not to reach a niche market. I mean, it could be for reaching a niche market, but on a grand scale. This is for grand marketing mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and what you're trying to do is the following. You're, the idea in, in the modern world is that uh, people have all kinds of divergent issue, um, uh, interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's thinking about themselves. Um, and on a political level, Everybody has their own little narrow interests for their community or the, the group that they belong to or their political beliefs. Uh, and this happens in marketing as well. Everyone's sort of balkanized into these, these very specialized niches. And it's very, very hard to reach, unite people almost in a religious sense and get them in an, in an emotional level so that they all feel like they're part of a group. Uh, this is also connected to another chapter in the book about like having a cult-like effect on on, on others. Mm-hmm. And game in creating a compelling spectacle is to bypass all of that niche stuff happening, all that balkanization, and reach people in a deep core emotional level, appealing to them through symbols, have a timeless basis. People want to feel united. They want to have that religious sense. They want to feel like at a rave that all 
10,000 people at the rave are feeling the same emotion. It's a very primal need that's not being fulfilled in the world today. Your job on this grand marketing, compelling spectacle fashion is to create something that's going to unite them in that primal way. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with what are the causes in the world that can, can do that. Uh, if, if people are now so much believing in the environment and it's a good thing, I don't, I'm not being cynical here. Um, creating something where they feel like they're all involved in, in, in an event or in buying something that's really going to have an effect on that cause they believe in that will have that unifying, compelling spectacle effect. Um, so it's, it's, that's really what I'm trying to get at on that level. I was recently at Google, uh, a couple of weeks ago to give a talk. It's the first time I was at the campus of Google out in Mountain View, California. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of an admirer of them and I'm an admirer of their marketing and how they've created this image. There, there's some negative things and particularly in Europe, people don't have as high opinion as they do, as we do here. Um, but their whole idea of don't be evil is, kind of connected to this this spectacle element of this sort of larger idea about this company that's not just uh, a business. It's almost like a religion, a mm-hmm. uh, religion based on the, sh- the free uh, flowing of information without any barriers at all. And they're very good at creating the kind of spectacles that feed into that image, uh, whether it's cynical or not. One thing that just came to my mind was um, when you lived over here, Robert, did you ever see things like Red Nose Day or Children in Need? Basically, it's like a big day where everyone donates to a good cause. Like Band-Aid as well in the 1980s, it was for a cause to raise money for people living in poverty in Africa. But there was a spectacle to go with it. There was this great event that was happening and they raised a lot of money, but they used a compelling spectacle to attract a lot of that awareness. Would that be an example? Yes, it would. And it, it calls to mind an example that I used uh, in the art of seduction. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the best political example, uh, particularly for the United States, was John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, this is the his first campaign uh, at a time when America was splintering like it's become now to an extreme into all these different interests um, and he created what was called this idea of the new frontier. Actually, sorry, it's after he got elected, but it was very powerful where he's, he was talking about the space race as the new frontier. And we're all Americans together. We're like, it's like the pioneers of the 19th century, mm-hmm. but outer space is now the new frontier. And this is, you know, every American can unite around the this, the actual image of a of the first man landing on the moon planting an american flag he didn't live to see that but he set it all in motion and it had a really powerful effect on the public it really said yeah this is what it means to be an american this is the spirit that we used to have that we've lost um and everybody was really joined, uh, got excited about the space program to an extent that nobody feels that anymore in the United States. And, mm-hmm. you, you you know, the question comes up in politics is what does it mean to be an American in the year 2013? That's the kind of uh, power that a compelling spectacle can have. It makes everybody who wants to buy your product or is going to vote for you feel like they're part of something larger, like a cause or whatever.
I think we experienced something similar to that in the UK this last year as well with the with the Olympics and the Jubilee. Our nation, which is kind of famous for being a bit grumpy and cynical, um, we were walking on water for a couple of months and then it did eventually wear off, but we had it for a little while. We had some spectacles that we all united in and everyone seemed happier for a little while. Not as good as going to the moon, though. Sounds like the same idea, though. I see what you mean. So, Robert, where can we get your books? Well, I, you know, UK Amazon um, is a great place to go or Amazon anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so all the, all five books, including Mastery, the new one, are available. My publisher in England is Profile. In the States, it's uh, Penguin Viking. Um, and, uh, you know, practically every bookstore that I know um, carries the books. Um, if none of that is, sinks into you, you can check out my uh, – my website, uh, Power, Seduction, and War, the and is spelled out, so powerseductionandwar.com, and on there there will be links uh, to all five books and a lot of information about my new book, Mastery. Great. I highly recommend that you go and get the books if you don't have them already. You definitely won't regret it. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Joey. My pleasure. The Online Marketing Show, every day with Joseph Bushnell, helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.